Hello, welcome into the podcast-only edition on New Year's Day of Purple Daily. Matthew Collar from TCO Performance Center with Vikings writer for The Athletic, Chad Graff. What is going on, Chad? This is exciting, the podcast-only edition. This is like when I get to fill in on July 4th when, <laughs> when things are a little bit quieter. Now we get the New Year's Day podcast edition. Yes, yes. So, I mean, not having a show in the middle of the week when there's playoffs going on, I felt it was necessary to give the people something to feast on here with the Vikings and so you and I have been out here at TCO Performance Center of Performance uh, doing our reporting duties and I think the most notable thing is uh, two parts from practice at the start of practice Eric Hendricks was not participating in full and Delvin Cook and Alexander Madison both out there looking like they'll be ready to play let's start with Delvin Cook first and then we'll get to Eric Hendricks I saw in The Athletic from Mike Sando uh, a quote that was pretty great (laughs) and I think right on that a defensive coach, an anonymous defensive coach, said about what the Viking strategy would be to run the bleep out of the ball with Delvin Cook to try and slow down the pass rush and also because it's Delvin Cook. Uh, what are your expectations for how healthy he will be and if they could get back to early season form with Delvin Cook? Because even when he was healthy in the start of the second half of the season, it just wasn't the same. He was picking up only about three and a half yards per carry even when he was in. So how do they get back to the early part of the year and how Delvin played? So I think these two things can be true, both A, that Dalvin Cook is not 100%. I think when you listen to him talk, he made mention of a couple times, you know, when he was asked, are you 100%? Like, what what percent healthy are you? Which is always a strange question to answer. Like, oh, I'm 84% today because I got a good night's sleep last night. But he essentially said, look, it doesn't matter what percent I'm at. I'd be playing in this game no matter what. So I think it is important to remember that he probably is not fully healthy. And yet... I think that he makes a huge, huge difference in this game. I think along with Eric Kendricks, who you mentioned, he is one of the most important non-quarterbacks in this game. Mike Zimmer talked about how the Green Bay Packers have dared the Vikings to run it, and when they didn't have Dalvin Cook, they either chose not to or could not run the ball. Mike Boone has had some good games, he's had some moments, but... He is a long, long ways from Dalvin Cook, both in just even identifying what holes to hit. There were many plays that were blocked okay, and Mike Boone just didn't hit them. And so Dalvin Cook, A, gives you that. But also, you know, I think what you need from Dalvin in this game, if the Vikings are going to have a chance, is a couple of big plays where he's out in space, beats somebody to the corner, you know, finishes off a drive, which the Vikings have not been great at in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, whether it's a screen or just a well-blocked run, breaks you know a player two for 30 40 50 yards I think I ran across the most telling stat for Delvin Cook yesterday when I was just writing a little piece about how important he is to this game that he gained the most yards after catch of any running back in the NFL per reception over 11 yards so that means he's (laughs) catching it behind the line of scrimmage and then gaining he has more yards after catch than he has total by quite a bit and that tells you a lot about just how important he's been to the receiving game as well he averages almost 10 yards a catch and is caught 53 of 63 targets so quick math that's really efficient if you're checking down or you're throwing a screen to Delvin Cook and that's where I think it, it could be huge for them because The times we've seen Kirk Cousins open games where he's 
been very anxious and nervous and he hasn't found Delvin Cook early, it's been problematic. And I think you can guarantee that he's going to be anxious when they go down there to New Orleans and they're playing in a playoff game for his first time since 2015 with, oh, by the way, everybody's job on the line, including his future contract. <laughs> All these things are in some way or another, which we can get to, resting on this game. And so you can bet that Cousins is going to be anxious, but in past big games, we have seen him find Delvin Cook on checkdowns, find him on screens, and he'll throw it three yards behind the line of scrimmage, and it'll turn into 25 yards. I think that's massive for the Vikings to come out early with Delvin Cook and find a way to get him the ball on screens and quick throws and then allow him to do the rest of the work. If they blow up those screens, I think we've seen this before, the Packers blew up a couple of screens, and I think Denver in the first half did. This team really seems to need those to succeed because if you're asking Cousins to just drop back and make plays, we saw what happened against the Packers. And those big plays do stand out, the plays over the top to Stephon Diggs when Kirk Cousins can bootleg on a play action, plant his feet, throw across the field to Adam Thielen or something. Yes, those plays stick out, but those are often later after Cousins is a little more established. And I think he... You know, when we hear all about big sample sizes and stuff, this can be sort of easy to, to discount. But with Kirk Cousins, I think it does make a big difference for him to, you know, complete a few passes to start feeling good. When he comes out, and we saw this at times last season, I think we've seen this in Chicago before, when he opens a game like one for four for four yards, all of a sudden you can see that it wears on him. He's not a quarterback that can just sort of flush all of that mid-game, at halftime, in the middle of a quarter, whatever. He is a quarterback who seems to build on things a little bit. Um, I know that you know we don't really want to stress momentum since there have been plenty of indications that it's not real, but I think for Kirk Cousins, it does help to get on a roll a bit, whether you want to call it momentum or something else, just to you know complete some of those screens to start moving the ball when, like against the Packers, they don't get a first down for a couple series in a row. All of a sudden, you see him come out, and you can just tell it's weighing on him. I think comfort and confidence are real, even if momentum is not some magical force that sweeps over your team right. at some point. You know, basketball, it's always talked about endlessly. And usually it's just the fact that, you know, it is a game of runs, as you hear every coach say. And so you'll be playing well for a little bit. The other team will. And that's probably what momentum really is. Um, and we saw, how about the Packers' momentum from beating the Vikings? They almost lost to Detroit <laughs> and David Blau because they carried over so much of that incredible momentum. Uh, I will also add that Alexander Madison is a big piece of this, that he has picked up something like 10 runs of 10 or more yards. And when they had that drive against Dallas where they ran 10 straight run plays, he was in on, I think, four of them or five of them. And when you get late in the game and the defense is worn down and he comes into the game at full strength, you could see the difference there. You could see linebackers that are not making tackles that they would have early on, defensive linemen not making tackles and bringing him down. And I think that's played a huge role in him averaging the same amount of yards per attempt as Delvin. He's not as good, but he's usually going up against a defense that's really run down at the point he comes in the game. Now, on Eric Hendricks, this one, to me, might determine the game, whether he plays or not. If he's not able to be out there, and I appreciate what Eric Wilson can do, I think Wilson's a, be a better fill-in for Anthony Barr, rushing the passer and things like that, than he is having to go sideline to sideline and do everything that Eric Kendricks does. I don't know if he, when he's in for Kendricks, calls out the plays and things like that, like Kendricks does, but it's such a massive role. And the way that Kendricks has played this year, especially in coverage, think about who he's facing this week. If you have a super 
superstar linebacker. He might give you a chance against Thomas over the middle and against Kamara out of the backfield. Without him, that's going to be exceptionally tough for the Vikings. Vegas spreads show you that outside of quarterbacks, the line really doesn't move much. The game probabilities don't change all that much. And yet, I really don't think it is overstating things to say that if Eric Kendricks doesn't play, the Vikings are going to have a very, very, very difficult time slowing down this Saints offense. And if he does play, I, I think that gives them a little bit more of a chance. I, I still think, you know, they're certainly underdogs and, and have been playing that up all week. But Eric Kendricks and what he has done this season, I think have been appreciated in Minnesota and talked about in Minnesota, but he, you know, was not selected to the Pro Bowl. He's not viewed, I think, with that same lens nationally. And this is potentially, I think, a game for him to show how good he's been. And if he plays to that level, I think this Vikings defense can, you know, between Eric Kendricks doing that with Kamara, stopping the run, being good, you know, against Kamara in the passing game. And then if the Vikings use Xavier Rhodes in a similar fashion uh, and play similarly, you know, with Thomas as they did to Devontae Adams, keep everything in front of them, don't give up any big plays. I think the defense can do a decent job against this Saints offense. And, and we've talked about it with the Vikings needing to hit those short passes and get yards after catch. Well, Michael Thomas leads all receivers in yards after catch, partly because he has the most catches of anyone, <laughs> um, but he still does pick up good chunks after the, the catch. And then Kamara out of the backfield, three straight years of each having 81 receptions, which right. is weird and random, but 81 receptions is a ton for a running back, and we've seen him beat the Vikings before. After, I think, after the Vikings failed on fourth down last year, was it that or an interception or fumble, whatever it was, against the Saints? Oh, it might have been the Thielen fumble against yes. the Saints last year. They get the ball and then immediately go to Elvin Kamara. I was just watching this game back the other day, and they go to immediately Kamara. He sets them up at the one-yard line, pounds it in. They had another red zone where he gets open, catches the ball, and in the Minneapolis Miracle game, one of the best throws I've ever seen live in my life, Drew Brees to Elvin Kamara over Eric Kendricks, who had incredible coverage. He's not going to be completely stopped, but you do not have a great chance of stopping him without your sideline-to-sideline -side superstar middle linebacker, which I'm willing to call Eric Hendricks yeah. after this year, that he played like that. And how many times can we think of all year where running backs have come out of the backfield and abused this Vikings defense? I can't think of any. I mean, maybe there was a play in Philadelphia where somebody was open. I think the Chargers hit one to maybe Eckler. But aside from that, very, very few times. So they absolutely need Eric Hendricks. Um, Chad, I, I've got some key matchups on our website that I think will determine the game. Uh, and it's not Kirk Cousins versus himself, which <laughs> I think is the matchup of all matchups. But I want to run through these and you just give me your take on who will win this matchup in this game and sort of what it means to the outcome. The first one is Marshawn Latimer against Stephon Diggs. Now, the first time they faced off in the NFC Championship game, Lattimore did not go against Diggs. He actually went up against Thielen, but last year he saw Diggs quite a bit. Um, you know, This sort of speaks to how strong the Saints actually are on defense, that they have star players at every spot. But Diggs is averaging the second most yards per reception in the entire NFL this year. What do you think of this matchup? Well, it's interesting. You note in your story at Score North that free website. <laughs> you don't need a promo code to get in. One of the two of us has a free website, and that is me. 
<laughs> you note on the website that uh, quarterbacks only complete 53% of their passes when throwing against Lattimore. And yet, I think Mike Zimmer noted this week that the Saints play a lot of man-to-man defense. And, you know, there are certainly benefits to that. However, I would be weary of doing that against Stefan Diggs, who I would argue is a top five route runner in the NFL, if not the best route runner in the NFL. Totally Somebody agree. who is great at contested catches. And if Kirk Cousins gives him a chance in these matchups, it lets him make a play one-on-one, I-, I think I'll take Stefan Diggs every day in that matchup. I remember maybe two years ago, where Mike Sandel, who used to write for ESPN, now writes for The Athletic, interviewed executives, and somebody compared Diggs to Antonio Brown in terms of being a route runner and contested catches. And, of course, it got a lot of comments, yeah, right, whatever, whatever. In the fantasy numbers, sure, he was not as good as Antonio Brown because they have two receivers here and throw to both of them. But uh, in terms of the efficiency of his routes, how often he finds himself open and then catching the ball when there is coverage, he is, as they say, elite. And uh, But Lattimore is too. I mean, he is a shutdown corner. This year was his worst by PFF grades. But as you mentioned, the statistics throwing against him, quarterbacks only have an 85 quarterback rating. So that's a matchup to watch. Do they actually believe that one cornerback can lock on to Stephon Diggs and shut him down? I haven't seen that happen too often during Stephon Diggs' career that someone can do that against him. Uh, the next one I have is Michael Thomas against Xavier Rhodes. Do we think this will actually be the matchup? And I kind of do because Mackenzie Alexander was not at practice today. If he's not out there, that means Hughes is your nickel corner and Xavier Rhodes is going to have to play the whole game. And if this is not the matchup, then what are you doing with Xavier Rhodes? Like, this is what Xavier Rhodes is built for. Courtney Cronin asked Mike Zimmer this week, you know, is this a perfect matchup for Xavier Rhodes, even acknowledging, uh, as I think we all would, that Xavier Rhodes is not at his 2017 level and, and really nowhere close. But Xavier Rhodes is a big corner who can play at the line and when you have a quarterback who gets the ball out as quickly as Drew Brees, I think it's like 2.5 seconds to throw faster than any full-time starter in the NFL. You need to disrupt those quick routes. And Xavier Rhodes, this is what he's supposed to be able to do. If he can't do this, then you have bigger issues. And I, of course, acknowledge that Michael Thomas is the best receiver in the NFL. And so, of course, there is that caveat, and he is going to get his and Uh, I think that the Vikings still have a decent chance, even if Thomas gets 11 catches for 115 yards, as long as they keep him out of the end zone and, you know, limit those plays to his long being 12, 13 yards. I think the Vikings can win with that. And, And where they're really good usually is tackling that we don't see receivers running after the catch very often. And Rhodes, even in his slowed state, is still very good at tackling. I don't hate this matchup for him. Uh, the last time they faced off, which was the divisional game, the Minneapolis Miracle game, because Rhodes didn't play last year, uh, it was three throws, three catches on nine attempts in, in going Michael Thomas's way from Drew Brees in that game. So Rhodes did a which tremendous... Which crazy. Brees to Thomas, if you can limit that to 33%. Three catches, right, yeah. I mean, so a tremendous job by Rhodes then. Of course, things are quite different now that Thomas has grown into the best receiver in the NFL and Rhodes has regressed significantly. But that matchup might be one we end up seeing all day. Cameron Jordan against Brian O'Neill is a great one because Jordan is a power rusher. O'Neill is on the lighter side, but he just allowed the first sack of his entire career 
last week. He's had a tremendous year. He might be their future left tackle after Riley Reef is done here. O'Neal has been, uh, I think, a, a complete hit for this team in terms of the draft, getting him at the very end of the second round in 2018. But this is a different kind of monster. You usually don't see guys rushing off the left end like this. Um, you know, of course, the, the offense is right. Like Cameron Jordan with this type of power. As you mentioned, Brian O'Neill's been great and better quicker than I think the Vikings envisioned. Remember when they drafted him, this was about a long-term play. We're going to yes. develop this guy. He was a tight end in college. This is going to take some time, and it really has not taken time for Brian O'Neill to blossom into a very good tackle. However, he is coming off of, I think, probably his worst game of the season. You mentioned allowing his very first sack, which, I mean, just take a moment to reflect on that. That is insane that he's gone this long. I think it set a PFF record for games played to start a career without allowing a sack. So yes, he is outstanding. However, Cameron Jordan, I think is one of the few DNs who I would take in a matchup against yep. Brian O'Neill. Uh, you mentioned just the sheer power of this guy, but I think what is also worth acknowledging is he's not a one trick pony. It's not that he is a great pass rusher, which he is 16 sacks, third most pressures in the NFL He's also incredibly good against the run, and I think that yeah. is going to be a big factor. If he can disrupt some of those holes, if he can you know, get to Dalvin Cook in the backfield, which Dalvin Cook has, has got a lot of yards even while getting hit in the backfield, but getting hit in the backfield by Cameron Jordan is different from getting hit in the backfield from a lot of other players. And I note in my free article that uh, <laughs> he is only behind Daniil Hunter and Zadarius Smith for pressures for the entire year, so you cannot expect that Brian O'Neill is just going to shut him down. Where it has been impressive from O'Neill is that he – last year would did not give up a sack but he would get picked up and pushed back into the quarterback and he's really improved there uh two more here Teron Armstead and Everson Griffin Everson Griffin is faded in the second half of this season he was one of the great stories of this year his bounce back from last season but for the last five games he has two pressures or less and dropped out from being number one and two with Daniil Hunter to fade quite a bit um, he's still 14th among edge rushers but it's just not the same Armstead is as good as they get for a left tackle Armstead shut out Griffin the last time they faced each other what's your expectation of how this one goes uh, again this is one that I think I'd give the advantage to the Saints not just because you know ever since play has declined in recent weeks Armstead is just really, really good. You're talking about not giving up sacks with Brian O'Neill. Guess what? Armstead hasn't given up a sack this season. Everson Griffin, you mentioned what an awesome story it was, and it it really was. However, I think the play has declined to such a degree that now I'm not sure he'll be back with the Vikings. I, I could yeah. certainly see a scenario where this is his last game or this is his last run with the team, and they move on to you know drafting another defensive end in the third round and, and rolling with Afadi Adenigbo and, and whoever that rookie may be. Um, it's been a, a really great career for Everson in Minnesota. I, I you know, I have a hard time betting against him in these big moments in the playoffs. He, he seems to up his game for, for the biggest games. However, his, you know, everything would tell you to favor Armstead in this matchup. Yeah, I agree. And Armstead is one of the two or three best players at that position in the entire NFL. Going up against him, even if you are at full strength, even if you are playing really well, is going to be tough. All right, last matchup, and then I have to ask you about the, the Mike Zimmer stuff and the future that we've talked about a lot on the show over the last few days. Delvin Cook against Demario Davis. Demario Davis and Eric Hendricks is the Spider-Man meme. I mean, they are the same guy. 
Uh, Davis gets after the passer a little bit more. He'll surprise you with a rush. He has 28 pressures this year, which is toward the top in the NFL for middle linebackers. His sideline to sideline stuff, his tackling, it's all uh, among the top in the NFL. And he's another one of those guys at a key position for the Saints that is incredible. If he can stop Delvin Cook on screens, if he can make the tackles that, say, the Dallas Cowboys did not make, where Delvin ran right through them, that's going to be a really long day for the offense. And so this is where I think the Saints are different from the image that a lot of people have in their minds, perhaps because Breeze has been there so long and Peyton has been there so long, where you know the you get the idea that the Saints are just an offensive team, but they have an awesome defensive end in Cameron Jordan, who we talked about, and this matchup, you know, I I think largely comes down to, as you mentioned in your story, Dalvin Cook's health. Dalvin Cook. 100% healthy with as explosive as he can be. I think I would take him, you know, in any matchup against any linebacker. Yeah. However, if he is slowed, this is not the matchup that you want to be going against. So I, I think I'll still take Dalvin Cook to have a slight edge, but if Dalvin Cook still has to fall favoring a certain direction, which he had to do in Los Angeles, which he openly admitted to and partly led to that second injury, the shoulder Learning injury, how to fall. Then, you know, I, I, I don't know how you could pick anybody uh, or how you could pick against um, the Vikings in this one. Yeah, no, I agree. But the um, the learning how to fall thing is just ridiculous. Like, that's your biggest fear. <laughs> your biggest fear is that he pulls a Thielen where he comes out and it's all right, he's ready to go. He's back. This means everything. And by the way, they've game planned for him to be in. And then all of a sudden it throws them for a loop if he has to go out because he takes a hard tackle. Uh, last thing, just I've been ranting quite a bit on the show about some of the takes for why Mike Zimmer should no longer have his job if they lose to the Saints. And I have pointed out repeatedly that the quarterback of this team has not shown up in a number of big games where the defense actually has 21 points against the Packers, 23 points against the Packers, 16 points against the Chicago Bears, giving you a chance to win any one of those games. And uh, you got an offensive no-show in all the big games. Even Kansas City, it's not like Matt Moore threw for 400 yards against you and still uh, quarterback not able to get it done with a chance at the end of the game. What is your take, though, on the pressure that Mike Zimmer is facing as he goes into this? Because clearly there are too many reports for there to be uh, for it to be false. Like it's obvious that the pressure of his job is there going into this game. So I think he can lose and still keep his job, but he cannot get embarrassed. The Vikings cannot go and lay a performance similar to Green Bay or to the NFC Championship of a couple years ago, where, of course, they lost 38-7. to If they have something like that, then ownership needs to confront some serious questions. And I think that Mike Zimmer is one of the best 10 coaches in the NFL, and you could make an argument that he's even higher up on that list. However, I think if you're, I think that you would have to grapple with a couple things if the Vikings are blown out and embarrassed, which is, one, Mike Zimmer, I think in a lot of ways, is the opposite of what many teams are looking for yeah. in a coach right now. You Offensive play seems to carry over better from year to year than defensive play. So a lot of teams are looking for offensive coaches. And two, I think you're looking for aggressive coaches who don't mind looking at analytics, who will take many things into consideration beyond just their gut. And that is not Mike Zimmer. However, he does have very many strengths that have gotten the Vikings to this point. Um, but the other thing that I think you would have to consider is, is being good enough. The Vikings under Mike Zimmer are good. They've been good for the better part of six years. 
Uh, we just saw the Wild grappling with a similar question under Paul Fletcher. They were good for six straight years. Uh, is that okay? Can do you do you go in with the hope that hey, we'll be good in the regular season? Anything can happen in the playoffs if we're playing well at the right time. Our culture, our players, you know, w- we can get things done. Or do you look at it and say, hey, we're not great, and we need to continue looking for somebody until we find a way to get great. And what they have in common is that the Minnesota Wild do not have Sidney Crosby or Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves, and so they might have an equal roster otherwise, but at number one center or at you know Alex Ovechkin, so the, the 60-goal scorer, uh, you don't have that. And when it comes to the playoffs, you usually don't win because their player is better. It's why the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz will not beat the Los Angeles Lakers. And I congratulate them already on a great season and playing really <laughs> well. But guess who you're not beating? LeBron James, because usually that doesn't happen. It's the same thing with football, where your coach is going to fall on the sword here because you have a quarterback that is not as good as the other team's quarterbacks. And you have the fifth scoring defense in the league, and then you're still going to potentially point at the head coach and say, well, sorry, you weren't good enough on your side of the ball because you're expected to just stop the New Orleans Saints who are going crazy on offense toward the end of the season here, as you might expect. What did Breeze go? 29 for 30 passing? But sure, yeah, you're going to have to rely on a great defensive performance because you probably can't match even though your quarterback has two elite wide receivers, one of the best running backs in the game, a decent enough offensive line that he makes look worse because he does not have the pocket presence. I mean, Cousins has had a great year, and I really respect what Kevin Stefanski and Gary Kubiak have done to get the type of numbers out of him that they did, but the limitations are just not going to disappear. He's not all of a sudden going to run a 4-3-40. He's going to run a 4-9-40. He can't run away from Zedarius Smith when he gets through. And he's not going to change the limitations that he has. It's not going to be all of a sudden a great pocket passer or a clutch drive guy who can run around and make plays like Russell Wilson. That's just not going to change. And just like we've seen with Andy Dalton and probably we'll see with Ryan Tannehill here in, in, the, in the playoffs, I, I think, Oh, that would be an amazing story, but, and maybe even Jimmy Garoppolo and definitely Jared Goff last year in the Super Bowl. You see the limitations show up at some point in the playoffs and Tom Brady and Drew Brees and probably Patrick Mahomes, these guys win it and you don't, that's NFL history. So I have a tough time pointing at the coach and saying, this is all you, you couldn't get us over the top when really it's the Marvin Lewis conundrum of if you don't have that guy, you can have a great roster and everything else. You can even get home playoff games, but. It's hard to go all the way through the playoffs when your strongest point is not under center. The flip side, though, that I think the Vikings will consider, and you know, separately you could debate whether this is right or wrong, is are you okay with watching Kevin Stefanski walk out for a different head job, Definitely. knowing full well that Mike Zimmer is probably not going to be here for five, ten-plus years. Uh, there was already the report last year that Zimmer shot down about him considering retirement, and Kevin Stefanski is – all of those things that we just mentioned, teams are looking yep. for. This ownership groups love Kevin Stefanski. Uh, they like, you know, that he embraces analytics. He, I think, would be an aggressive head coach. He is what you're looking for in 2020 for a head job. And, you know, right or wrong, I think that ownership will have to consider whether they're okay with him leaving to be the head coach of the Browns or the Panthers or whomever else. Yeah, and it's funny about that because Kevin Stefanski can look at analytics all he wants, and I am a lover of analytics here, but if he goes to Cleveland and Baker Mayfield is still a D-bag, then good luck. I mean, really, he's just – 
If he's still got the weaknesses he showed this year, then Stefanski will fail. And Ron Rivera didn't like analytics for anything and was in the Super Bowl with Cam Newton because he, at that year, was better than everybody else and won the MVP. And, it, and no one seemed to talk about how Ron Rivera didn't love analytics. But when Kyle Allen, who's horrible, is his quarterback, then all of a sudden it's, why well, maybe he didn't like analytics enough. It's, it's a funny narrative that we write about the coach when a lot of times it points to who's on the roster is, is how I look at it. And when you have an organization with this type of culture, it's hard for me to say, well, he's got to go. If it was the Cleveland culture, I'd say, yeah, dude, make a change. Oh, my God. But with this, I, I don't see that. So, Chad, always appreciate your time. You can read Chad's work at The Athletic. If you do not have a subscription, I guarantee you there's some type of deal. Hit me up on Twitter. Off. I'll find one yeah, for you. You'll find it. 50% off if you use the <laughs> promo code Chad. Um, that's not true. So, all right. All right. Well, always, always appreciate your work. You have a podcast on there as well. People can find it, theathletic.ca or web or whatever it might be. Um, so thanks, Chad. And we'll see you July 4th when you're filling in for me. <laughs>